welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Star, a young adult literature podcast. There are film and television adaptations and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. I was going to do a thing, yeah, but I couldn't I remember I, the pro- I, I, I couldn't remember her name. <laughs> well, that's telling, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm Tris. No, is it too late? It. You know what? Let's move on. <laughs> And our show was created on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, the Huron-Wendat, and the Anishinaabe on lands connected to the Toronto Purchase Treaty 13 of 1805. And on the Tukumlupste territory within the unceded traditional lands of Shwetmakulu. And today's text, Insurgent, is set in a post-apocalyptic Chicago, which I found out by Googling, not because I knew it. Mm-hmm. And it's the home of the Peoria, Miamia, Kickapoo, Kaskaskia, and Potawatomi peoples. Yeah, not that we'll ever see any of them in here, because of course, this film is very diverse, but has no time or interest in actually addressing, like, land. No, which is weird, given the context that we find out at the end of this book, that this is like a big sort of like land experiment, really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (sighs) At the very end. I have some feelings about this being my first book of 2022, I gotta say. Pleasurable. Pleasurable. Well, folks, uh, I should say that you should all be very excited because even if Brenna and I didn't love this book and are okay on the movie, I was looking at our downloads and apparently Insurgent is the number five episode of this podcast. So clearly there are some fans of this franchise. You mean Divergent was the number five Divergent was. Because otherwise, where Insurgent will land. That's an amazing prediction. Um, Joe, before we start and talk about why lying can't be your only narrative device. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Can I tell you about an app I discovered over Christmas that I think our listeners would be interested in? Absolutely. Okay, so it's both an app and a website. It's called The Storygraph, mm-hmm. and it's an alternative to Goodreads. So I know oh. a lot of folks are trying to divest themselves from Amazon, and Goodreads is unfortunately uh, owned by Amazon. And one of the things that I've noticed since Amazon took over Goodreads is that like I feel like my recommendations have gotten worse (laughs) and I think that it has to do with advertising right it's like who's paying the most money to get advertised right so you know I have not cut Amazon out of my life though I have tried to really scale it back particularly through the pandemic Mm -hmm. and so I was reading about you know other options and I found out about this app called the Storygraph. so it is just like Goodreads logs your reading process, a couple of cool things about it that our listeners might like. It's a black woman owned and developed piece of software. Yeah. It's got much cooler graphics, frankly, like, and it shows your reading development over time. So you know how with Goodreads, you have to wait till the end of the year to get your stats. Mm-hmm. Storygraph keeps track of your stats all year long. Books right. read, pages read, but also things like What mood of book do you pick up most often? What pace of book do you pick up most often? Okay. How often do you pick up a low star rating book versus a high star rating book? And you can see all that visually. I think it's pretty cool. It lets you do things like uh, buddy read with a friend, or apparently they have a new feature coming soon that'll let you do like a whole book club can be reading on the app together and like comparing, you know, their progress and stuff. That wouldn't be helpful for us at all, would it? (laughs) (laughs) And a couple of features that I really liked, two things that Goodreads does really badly. It handles 
not finishing books really badly. They're basically Mm -hmm. on your shelf or they're not on your shelf. This actually has a DNF function. Like you can tell the app you gave up on a book and it actually tracks that. And the other cool thing it does better than Goodreads is it logs repeat reads better than Goodreads does. It counts that reading towards your yearly totals. So yeah, I just thought I'd give a plug for it. I'm really enjoying it so far. It's called thestorygraph.com. If you want to go and sign up, you can download an app. Uh, If you prefer, I'm using the app on my phone. And uh, it's just, it's a really pleasurable visual experience. Like I recommend checking it out. Interesting. Yeah, I love that DNF because there have been so many times where I've started a book, not liked it, and then been like, oh, okay, I guess this counts for nothing. Well, that's the thing, right? Like you want it to count towards your page total for the year at least, right? Mm -hmm. So um, a tool that can actually do that I really like. And it is, you know, sometimes I've tested out other bookish apps in the past that have claimed to be a competitor for Goodreads, but they haven't had the features all there or they haven't been sort of polished up. This is like, it's there. Oh, the other cool thing is that you can, if you want to, add content warnings to books after you finished reading them. And when you look up books on the app, you can choose to or not choose to engage with those content warnings. So Hmm. pretty cool, pretty fully featured. And um, as I say, much more visually pretty, which I think is good. (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't hurt. As an no. app, as as Dr. Sid would have told us on Mismatched last week. <laughs> oh, no, and Jill, one more thing that I know you will like. It allows you to give half and quarter stars. Oh, my goodness. Okay, <laughs> that, that sells me right there. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. I don't star things, but I know that you would love to give a quarter star once in a while. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, well, thank you for the PSA. And yeah. Now let's turn our attention to the project at hand, shall we? (laughs) Yeah. Sorry, I just wanted to share. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about Insurgent. Do I have to tell people what it's about, Joel? Yeah, and you've even got to do the groundwork because what if they haven't read Divergent? Oh my goodness. Watch Brenna. Her head is just going to like wave off into the air. Okay. So Insurgent is book two in the Divergent series. It came out in 2012 as a sequel to 2011's Divergent. It's written by Veronica Roth, and it continues the narrative of our hero, Beatrice Pryor. She goes by Triss, and she is living in this post-apocalyptic state. In the first volume, the premise of the book is that there are these factions, and everybody Mm -hmm. is born into one. She, in the first book, discovers that she has affinity for more than one faction and chooses to leave the faction in which she was raised. I was going to go into a whole thing about them all, but I'm going to skip that. Yeah. (laughs) So that's the basic premise of book one. Triss goes and discovers her life in this new faction and uncovers that there are other people like her who have this divergence, this ability to kind of work in different modes, in different factions. So, book mm-hmm. two... She also discovers a conspiracy to control everyone by the evil Janine from Erudite. Yes. So, at the end of the first book, there's, like, a big uprising because Janine has taken control of everyone through a simulation and they've killed a bunch of people. And so, this book opens, like, immediately after those events. So, mm-hmm. I did not refresh myself, Joe, on what happened in Divergent. Oh, no. And there's no catch-up. There's no help. No. Mm -mm. Thank you, Veronica Roth. She default (gasps) assumes that you either reread it or are just super intimately familiar. Because even the characters that are on the run with Triss and Four, which is Triss's boyfriend who... 
Oh boy, strap in, folks, because we have got <laughs> a relationship built on lies. But yeah, like they're on the run with a bunch of other people, and I could not remember which no. person was who. So they've got Christina, which is Trista's best friend, but then they have Caleb as well as Peter, and I could not remember which one was her brother and which one was the one that she hates. Yeah, and you get no help. Like, I was very confused for seriously the first 50 pages. The other thing is that Roth seems to believe that she did all her world building in book one and no Mm -hmm. longer needs to worry about that. So you get very little context for where they are at any point in time. So Mm -hmm. this book opens in the Amity sector where they are seeking shelter, but... Which we have never been to before. No. (laughs) any idea why it's a different place because i didn't at all oh you weren't picking up the context clues that they're on a farm and this is like the only function that this faction has apparently (laughs) but i like it's fascinating how little there was no connection like farm equals amity like you get Mm -hmm. no signposting whatsoever it's kind of amazing it says a lot to me about how publishers and editors think about these kinds of series books for young adults as yes really sort of one sustained narrative and that is often to the detriment of how the book stands alone i think as you and i discovered this time around Mm -hmm. and i would be okay with it if all of that had been laid out in the first book but the reality is is that we really only touched on a couple of locations and principally like two or three factions like basically we got to know dauntless which is the faction tris moves into we got to know erudite because they're evil Mm -hmm. even though they're supposed to be smart and that's that was the thing that we had a criticism of in the first book and then abnegation which is the faction that tris comes from so candor and amity are the two other ones and they never really got filled out and here we're supposed to just know them and they're critical yeah. <laughs> they are critical to this book and you don't get any help understanding how they fit. So all this to say they have to leave Amity uh, because Amity doesn't want to protect them anymore. So they go to Candor where they're required to take truth serum, um, which starts a whole sort of like thing because this is how we find out about why Tobias chose Dauntless and and he becomes vulnerable in the eyes of Dauntless for the first time. And Triss has to... Tris has to tell the truth that she killed uh, her friend Will. So, like, all of this stuff happens. It's supposed to be very dramatic, but also the stakes aren't really there. Like, you would think in Dauntless, if you killed someone, that wouldn't be that big of a deal because they're all about risk-taking and, like, being the kind of action superheroes. So I get that, obviously, Tris feels bad about killing her friend and it's Christina's boyfriend or whatever, And it's supposed to be rough, and it kind of is, but it also feels like a big old shoulder shrug, like, "Eh, who cares? Well, again, I think this has to do with the lack of building into this narrative, because I honestly didn't even really remember the relationship between Christina and Will until I was being told that Christina was mad because Will was killed. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? Like, there's so many pieces that you have to put together, and that really damages the stakes in the long run. Yeah. Anyway, our heroes end up in basically this kind of political triangle between Tobias's mother and father. Tobias's mother has become like the leader of the factionless, and she wants to overthrow everything and destroy the factions and put herself in power. 
<laughs> yeah, it's important to note she she wants to destroy the factions, but she also would like to be in power. <laughs> yes, yeah, it's like destroy the factions so that I can be the boss. Yes. Um, meanwhile, his father, Marcus, I don't really understand his motivations now that I'm starting this sentence, except that it's not that. Yeah, so Marcus <laughs> wants to recover information that yes. Janine, the head of Erudite, has access to because he believes that it will destroy her power. Because, of course, the conflict in this book is the exact same conflict as in Divergent, which is that Janine must be stopped because she's evil and wants to continue doing simulations that will keep her in power. So Marcus says, if we can get this information and reveal what's on it to the world, Janine's power will be removed. Yes, and also that information was protected by Triss's parents, who are now both dead. And so <laughs> Triss feels like this commitment to see through her parents' mission, even though it means going against Tobias, who aligns himself with his mother, partly out of rage against his father. But it's okay, because Tobias is lying to Triss about this, so really they're just lying to each other back and forth. Yeah, everybody's lying all the time. Anyway, I'm going to just fast forward to the end, which is when we find out that what Janine's been keeping secret is that this was all like a big experiment. And Mm -hmm. all of these people were put inside these city walls and given factions to Mm -hmm. see what would happen. And the emergence of divergent people means the experiment is done. I -hmm. have several question marks there, Mm -hmm. but I'm assuming they will get answered in book three. The idea of which just makes me feel very tired. Uh, yes. Also, we should point out that if people feel like this plot synopsis has sounded vaguely familiar, it's because it's the exact same <laughs> plot as the Maze Runner. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Secret experiment from the outside world because you're going to save us all, but you don't know what that is and you've got to reach the end of like book two or three to get to it. Which, to be clear, all of this is just the same story as Lord of the Flies, right? Like, at some point, we're just rewriting the same dystopia. And, you know, in this moment of, like, and I I get this was 2011, 2012, which was Mm -hmm. comparatively a far more frivolous time. But I think, not to overrun the whole conversation here, Joe, but I do think part of the problem is that these kind of dystopias feel so silly and foolish from living inside a dystopia. (laughs) Like, we're living within a plague and a climate catastrophe, and we have political leaders who seem to be incapable of helping us survive either. And it's like, I don't need to, like, make up a pretend conspiracy where people are put inside a city and given personality types. Like, I'm... I'm living in the end of times. Like, this this is very quaint and cute. I just, it's like, it doesn't do anything for me anymore. I miss the Brenna who found this kind of dystopian story in any way compelling. <laughs> okay, so Brenna's going to go off to the corner and have an existential crisis. Low one. No, I can, low one. I can 100% understand what you're saying. I think for me, there's definitely still an appeal to these kinds of books. Like this was my bread and butter in the 2010s. I was reading this, The Hunger Games. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Lord help me. Even that other one, The Maze Runner. Like all, <laughs> all of these. I read a bunch of them. 
And I kind the of Maze enjoyed Runner, them. Sorry, can I just interrupt and say the Maze Runner strikes me as some publishing house somewhere being like, you know, dystopias could be for boys too. Mm-hmm. Why do the girls get to have all the fun at the end of the world? <laughs> yes, exactly. <sighs> so I will say I... I find a certain level of enjoyment in these stories, if only because it allows me to work out some of my angst and kind of hand wringing mm. about the things that I can't control in the real world. But I get to see powerful children in acting, basically having agency and being the ones who will step forward and help to save the day. So I, I still like that. What Reading Insurgent reinforced to me is that it can be done well, or it can be done kind of lazily Mm. and i'm not here to just crap on veronica roth the whole time but honestly this book needs a really firm edit because it is super repetitive the characters don't stand out and you're right there's a huge issue with like land and geography and you know when we get to the film we can talk about how it does and doesn't improve on these problems but I found particularly in the book, it really suffered from sequelitis to me. It felt mm-hmm. like I was just rereading Divergent, but in a less interesting way, because I couldn't believe we were still dealing with Janine and her dumb simulations in almost the exact same way. It's like, oh, she's going to turn us all into soldiers and we're not going to have minds and we're going to be shooting each other. It's like, yes, we did that already. That was book one. Well, and the weird part is that like... <sighs> The whole drama between Christine and Triss, which takes up a shocking amount of real estate in this book, by the way, Uh it doesn't make any sense because Christina must know what a simulation is, Mm -hmm. right? Like, she's been in one. Yeah, she herself was controlled by one in the last book, so she would know, oh, I had no control over my actions. Hmm. Yeah, and yet... That has to be explained like 19 times. <laughs> and I wish that was an exaggeration, but it's not. <laughs> it's explained like 19 times. And I just feel like over and over again, you know, the plot, I was joking to Joe that the plot formula here is someone lies to someone. Usually Tris lies to Tobias, but sometimes they mix it up and Tobias lies to Tris. So <laughs> someone lies to someone. That action directly creates some kind of catastrophic danger. Yes. That both or either party have to be rescued from mm-hmm. they swear never to lie to each other again and then blather do repeat. it again <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh i mean i feel like and maybe this is a particularly adult issue with this book but tris is so juvenile in her yes. relationship with tobias not only is there a shocking absence of any kind of chemistry to the point that i wondered why do these two even continue to go back to each other we're told that they love each other but their actions say complete otherwise yeah but just so many fundamental issues with mistrust and miscommunication in here and it's all for the purpose of extending and drawing out conflict but not in an interesting way well it's it's a pet peeve i think of both of ours the over-reliance on lying mm-hmm. as the main narrative oh i hate um, it like driver yep. it's tedious like i don't like it in a 20 minute episode of fraser so i'm not <laughs> gonna like it in a 400 plus odd page book yeah and i found it 
it's a strength of the film that they extract a lot of it so that yeah. the movie can move with a lot more pace. But coming back to this idea of chemistry and like Triss's immaturity, this becomes a huge problem in the film when Tobias is a 31-year-old man. <laughs> yes. Uh, to be fair, we're aging up nearly everybody in the film. Yes. Oh, yeah. I don't mean like, I just mean this is like in the film, clearly an adult relationship and they're both behaving like teenagers. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. I see what you mean. I thought you were trying to say that there was a huge age disparity. Oh, no, 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 no. No, no, no. It's like this is a 31-year-old man and a 20-something woman and they're behaving like 15-year-olds. And it's yes. really weird to watch on screen. Also, yeah. Tobias's mother, I checked, is 14 years older than him when this film was shot. Oh, sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. I'm not ready to get to the film just yet though okay, because fine. i do want to talk about one other thing because it's, it's one of the things that i think got this book praise when it first came out which is this idea that tris has a martyr complex oh. and she's just constantly rushing into danger and i've seen some people say oh this is an interesting depiction of ptsd because she doesn't actually value her life like she she has to be reminded that not only is she vulnerable, but also that she needs to learn to love herself again. Hmm. I guess, okay, here's why I think that's a problem as an argument. I buy it in The Hunger Games. I don't, as we've talked about, like Suzanne Collins and I, no love lost. Like, right. I don't think that she's doing a particularly gifted job of writing trauma. <laughs> but yeah, she's, you're not inviting each other to like holiday meals. You know, not not again. Not after what happened last time. <laughs> <laughs> But what I what I have to give Suzanne Collins credit for is there's a very clear relationship between the trauma stimulus and the behaviors that uh, Katniss engages in. Hmm. And it's clear to the reader that these are trauma responses. Right. Roth uses trauma as a way to hand wave away what is ultimately largely confusingly or unmotivated behavior on the part of Triss. So okay. whenever... Whenever Roth needs drama, crisis, stakes, she has Tris try to kill herself, throw her, put herself in danger, right? Mm -hmm. But the second it matters for anything, we're told that Tris doesn't want to die, right? She regrets yeah. it. Oh my God, I wish I hadn't done this. And then does the whole thing again two seconds yeah. later. What's different about the way trauma is depicted in something like The Hunger Games is that it's sort of an escalating process for Katniss, right? And like mm -hmm. Katniss's life has meaning in sort of the context of service, I guess. Right. And I think Roth is trying to do that here, but I it's just not so. persuasive or believable because no. Triss is so impulsive and so incapable of thinking through the ramifications of her actions that she is not of service to anyone. She literally mm -hmm. just keeps almost getting people killed for the entire book. Yeah, which is especially frustrating when you are definitely dealing with a chosen one narrative. Mm -hmm. You know, we're repeatedly told that Triss is special. She is the one who does things that no one else can do. And ultimately, at the end of this, this is proven correct when, you know, she becomes the most important person to Janine. Mm -hmm. Even more so in the film, but interestingly enough, the film removes a lot of these kind of suicidal ideations which, again, I would actually argue is for the film's betterment because yes. it doesn't have to try to engage with that in a very surface or shallow level. 
but the problem is, is you're right. You know, there's this one key moment where Janine starts activating this new simulation and she can make dauntless people die by suicide. And one of these supporting characters who doesn't stand out in any way dies and everyone's very upset. And Triss decides, okay, I'm going to leave and I'm going to turn myself in so that Janine can experiment on me, even though... Tobias specifically asked her not to do this. And then mm-hmm. she wakes up in the middle of the night and does it. Mm-hmm. And then she turns herself in and not even, I think, two pages later, instantly regrets it and goes, yes. oh, I'm going to die. And then we have to read, you know, 50 pages of her crying herself to sleep and shaking and pleading to know what time it is so that she has some kind of control over her life. And you're just like, I don't understand what we're supposed to be getting from this. It's so yes. frustrating. <laughs> Yes, yes, I 100%. And I think Roth does this to herself, unfortunately, by relying so heavily on repetition. Mm-hmm. Because, oh my gosh, oh. as a reader, there is more it's walking fatiguing. in this than Lord of the Rings. <laughs> then we went to Candor, and then we went to Amity, and then we went to Erudite, and then we went back to Dauntless. But oops, we didn't patch up all the surveillance cameras. Oh. <laughs> I am dying to know, and I'm sure we have listeners with far better understanding of the geography of Chicago than I have. I am dying to know from listeners if they knew that this was Chicago without Googling it. Because mm. to me, there's nothing, and I, you know, maybe I should have reread Divergent, maybe it's all in there, but there's certainly nothing in Insurgent that lays out what this city is or why it might be important that it, Chicago was the city that was chosen. Like, Oh, it's just the trains, I think. Joe, you wanted to talk a little bit about middle offerings in these kinds of series, and I'm mm-hmm. I'm game for it because the stuff that I care about here, because these characters I do not find particularly compelling and nope. chemistry notwithstanding, I'm just like Triss is just not that interesting as a person. Nope. So what I'm really interested here in is the politics. Like that's fascinating. What we find out in the last handful of pages, mm-hmm. that this is a giant experiment being perpetrated against this population, fascinating. Give me more of that. And yet, I get to the end of the book, and the idea of having to read Allegiant to find out any of these answers, mm-hmm. that makes me feel very, like, I'm not <laughs> eager. I'm not eager or excited. And I, I just wonder if... Part of me wonders if this book needs to exist at all. Like, could we not have fast-forwarded to Allegiant? <laughs> Brenna, hey, I mean, it's it's a fool's errand to ever ask if something needs to exist. <laughs> but most importantly, you know as well as I do that there was this period of time yes. where every, especially any YA series, it always had to come in threes. Had to come in threes, and the films had to be broken into four for some reason. Correct, yes, which, uh, oh boy, if we ever get to Allegiant, that's going to be the funniest experience. Because <laughs> they made one movie, and then it didn't do well enough financially, and then never made the other half. I read somewhere that they tried to make a TV series of the second half, and mm-hmm. Shanae Woodley was like, absolutely not, nope. Absolutely, yep. <laughs> she said, nope, that's not what I signed on for, goodbye. You know why? Because they wouldn't have paid her as much money, so it's like, no, well... Of course. Allegiant is garbage. Like, it is the worst of the entire series by far. So I can understand not wanting to come back for that alone, but then also not making money off of it. No. Good day, sir. Yeah, seriously, you got to at least cash in if you're in one of these movies, right? Like, that's mm-hmm. that's sort of the point. 
Oh, for sure. Yeah. Especially the second one. And that's part of the issue too, right? Is that like the first one is where a lot of these young actors make their names. And then mm-hmm. we're left with this second offering where I don't know if producers are too timid to let them do anything new or interesting or if the narratives never allow themselves to go there. But like we just end up with a same again. Yes. But without needing to be introduced to these people. So it's like, what what are we doing? Like, what? Mm-hmm. We're just spinning our wheels. It's a problem with any trilogy or sort of finite series, right? It's you can't give us a conclusion. So Brenna, you said what I'm most fascinated in is the tease, right? It's what's to come in this final concluding story. Because we're interested to see where the story is finally going to go. But in order to get here, unless, yes, you are willing to say, my story doesn't need this middle part. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure Roth would suggest otherwise and say, oh, Insurgent is absolutely paramount to building the relationship between Tristan Tobias, between introducing Mm. his mother, the head of the faction list, Mm. in terms of laying out the groundwork, getting rid of Janine. But, I mean, you and I would look at this and say, well, a good editor would have helped you to get to all of this a lot sooner. Yeah, like this could have been one of those Amazon exclusive novellas in between the two books. (laughs) (laughs) yes see stephanie meyer who has made a living an absolute killing in repurposing stories from another person's perspective and or filling in here's a one day gap in which bella and edward went up a mountain and had a beautiful hike cool and actually let's talk about perspective while while you're on the topic joe because i feel like the theme of the last six months episodes of this show has been like First-person narrative is really hard. Mm -hmm. This book really suffers from the fact that Triss is tedious. And her motivations are cyclical and repetitive, right? Mm -hmm. Like, how much more interesting would this book have been if we could have found out... Like, maybe we read the chapter where... Tris confesses everything at candor. Maybe we read that from Christina's perspective. So we actually understand what is going on in Dauntless that this is such a huge deal. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, there's so many moments here where I just wanted to hear from literally anybody else. And that was really (laughs) driven home to me because I read the special edition for my sins. Oh, yes. You teased that you might do this. Yes. At the end of the special edition, you get a bonus chapter which is oh lucky you (laughs) remember back in divergent when four throws the knife at tris Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. okay so you get that chapter from four's perspective makes sense in the second book yes okay (laughs) let's just circle back to this moment but it's it was really to me a moment of like oh well this was a missed opportunity like this is exactly what the book could have used, particularly in this second volume, to keep it feeling more alive and fresh. Um, and it's not even that I think Four is like particularly interesting as a person. It's just no. nice to be outside of Triss's head for five minutes. Yeah. You know, a standalone single book, first person narrative is hard enough, but sustaining so that across a trilogy books yes when you're so insistent on writing these characters who perform trauma in really specific ways Mm -hmm. unconvincingly yes (laughs) i just think it's a tall order and like roth has set herself up for something really 
difficult here and it's unsuccessful ultimately and yeah i mean yeah. this book was fine i i was now the second time i've read this book i will not remember it two weeks from now if oh, you quiz me gosh, on no. the contents of unsurgent i will not know what happened no it's interesting reading this in anticipation of the conversation that we're going to have next week at our first band book club mm. because one of the things that I'm really grappling with, and I think I've mentioned this before, is like Trace and I have had numerous conversations on horror queers. We've had really polarizing reactions on Twitter about unlikable protagonists or characters mm -hmm. who are doing things that you find it difficult to relate to and whether or not that's a deal breaker in terms of storytelling. And I think the problem is, is that if you swing too far to one side, then you get art that doesn't ever take any chances because it's afraid to have an unlikable character who does things that you don't agree with. Well, and I will say that typically the characters who that disenfranchises are women because mm -hmm. we have such a narrower band of what's socially acceptable for women like you're yes. never gonna see the lady tony soprano you're never gonna see the lady breaking bad like there's no mm -hmm. there's no appetite for the female anti-hero or much less of an appetite for the female anti-hero so i get what you're saying like they have right. to be allowed to have unlikable particularly female leads it's really mm -hmm. important and I think that this in particular, like this Hunger Games and a couple of other texts were trying to do something like that, right? It's this idea of an empowered teenage girl who comes in and literally changes the world against all odds and often uh, to prove a point to men and adults who don't believe in her. Like we've had so many conversations about the importance of teen girls and how we need to value their contributions both in art and in real life. And I, I'm so interested in continuing to have that conversation and seeing it played out in different ways. The problem with Triss is, as you said, she's not complex. She's nope. not interesting to watch or read as she tries to grapple with these issues. Like, I still don't know what drives her. Even after having read two of these books, it feels like she, like she has a hero complex but it's very ill-defined and maybe not even certain to herself. She just feels like she has to do things. But also then you throw in this love affair and sometimes it feels like she's doing things for a boy or because yep. a boy did something to her. And it's, uh, I don't know. I, I really struggle with this character, which I think is why I like the films more because at least then I get to watch Shailene Woodley, who is a really mm -hmm. talented actress, play out this character who i think is one-dimensional yeah i agree completely i think the film is far more successful for a bunch of reasons woodley notwithstanding like she's a much better tris than tris is but yes. also because it's a film and because it's a visual medium the world building has to get done and mm -hmm. so everything that roth skips that is so frustrating as a reader in this second entry we get right we we get the opulence of amity the second we arrive there we know we're not in dauntless anymore mm -hmm. and that is really helpful that helps to move the narrative along because you're not constantly wondering if you missed something yeah i think that's really important yeah, and let's maybe transition over to the film since uh, I think we'll maybe have a few more positive things to say. You found it. The future our people deserve. What does Janine think is in that box, Caleb? I don't know, but she's testing divergence. Searching for the one who can open it. Find them. 
Every last one of them. Janine's never gonna stop coming after us. It's time we fight back. We don't have the numbers. We will. This is factionless. This is insane. Janine claims you're all dangerous insurgents. If we were to combine forces, we'd be unstoppable. Anyone else die because of me? Chris, help me! It's really good to see you again. What does she want with her? It's the perfect subject. You need to be strong. You're brave. She's the one. The only chance we have to rescue a little civilization we have left. Dark times call for extreme measures. Let's begin. I'm not gonna fight you. Of course you're not. You're gonna fight you. Okay, so Insurgent comes out in 2015. We get a new director in Robert Schwenke. And we also have three writers on this. So we have Akiva Goldsman, who is a staple of fantasy science fiction texts. Mark Baumbach, who I didn't look up, so I'm not familiar with his work. And then also writer Brian Duffield. And I'm just going to make a quick uh, side recommendation. I don't think this script is amazing. I don't think this film is amazing. It's fine. It's serviceable. But if you are looking for a really good contemporary take on a male protagonist that's doing something fun and fresh, Brian Duffield wrote a movie called Love and Monsters with Dylan O'Brien from The Maze Runner. It came out, I think, two years ago. It's a big recommend. It's surprisingly effective. Cool. So, yes, we have returning for this film, Shailene Woodley. We've got Theo James as Tobias slash four, Zoe Kravitz as Christina. It's weird. I never made the connection when we talked about Divergent, but obviously this is a Big Little Lies prequel with uh, (laughs) Zoe Kravitz and Shailene Woodley. We have Miles Teller as Peter. That is the person that Trist does not get along with. We have... Ansel Elgort, who is her brother, Caleb. We have Jai Courtney as Eric, who is the dauntless traitor, who is her sort of primary antagonist outside of Janine. And his partner, Mackay Pfeiffer, Max, who is, I gathered, an original creation for the film series. I didn't even remember him from Divergent. No, I didn't either. Fun little thing uh, between Mackay Pfeiffer and Keenan Lonsdale as Urea. We've also got people who went on to star in the Love Victor universe. I was going to say, I much prefer <laughs> Mackay Pfeiffer in the Love Victor universe. Yes. <laughs> okay. And then adult wise, we've got Kate Winslet as Janine. She's reprising her role. New to the franchise is Octavia Spencer as Johanna. Completely wasted. Uh, mm-hmm. But thanks for including more people of color. Yay. Naomi Watts as Evelyn, that is Four's mother and the head of the factionless. And then Ray Stevenson reprises his role as Marcus. Same with Maggie Q as Tori, who is one of the dauntless new leaders, I guess. 
New to the franchise is Daniel Day Kim as Jack King, who is the head of Hander. He may not mean anything to you, but he was uh, one of the big characters on Lost. Uh-huh. And then Ashley Judd and Tony Goldwyn reprise their roles as Triss's parents, mostly in cameos. And Janet McTeer, the British actress, as the mysterious woman in the message from the outside world, and she will have more to do in Allegiant. Yes. I thought she was I thought she was Triss's mother for about well, ten minutes. Okay, so the film does make a couple of fairly significant changes. As we talked about, there's a little bit less with Triss experiencing PTSD and having suicidal thoughts or in terms of like murdering herself. I would say the other big thing is that Janine doesn't know about the message yeah. from the outside world. So she is trying to capture this box that was in the abnegation sector. We're meant to believe that that's why or part of the reason why she executed this plan at the end of Divergent. So she's got the box and the whole thing is about using Divergent people to try to go through these various simulations to open it up and get the message. And then of course, if you've read the book, you know what the message is and Janine immediately wants it squashed so that no one can ever find out. But I thought that that was actually more compelling. Yeah, the stakes are higher. Right? It's better stakes and it also... It makes Janine a bit more of an interesting character, and it gives Kate Winslet slightly more to do. It's really not a great role for this fantastically talented actress. No. I would say this film has a much better cast than what it's actually doing with them. Oh, definitely. Add this to our list of movies with wasted adults, (laughs) because that's exactly what's happening here. I had forgotten that Octavia Spencer was in this. And the minute she shows up, I thought, no, not in this role. This is <laughs> yeah. such a bad role. I know. I know. I know. Um, can we talk a little bit about chemistry? Or the lack thereof? It's fascinating to me because if you read the contemporary reviews, there's much celebration of the chemistry between Shailene Woodley and Theo James. Oh. Uh, Hmm. Which I'm fascinated by because to me, there is basically the same chemistry between Triss and Four, between Mm -hmm. Triss and Peter, and between Triss and Caleb. Yeah, we definitely spent a lot of time talking about her chemistry with her brother in that first film because it it came out the same year as Fault in Our Stars. It was a casting mistake, I think, just in general. Like you're asking Mm -hmm. a lot of the audience to separate the imaginary worlds to that degree, but more to the point, the narrative itself doesn't help. And in this installment in particular, mm-hmm. there's just as much sort of, um, I don't know, burbling under the surface between mm-hmm. Tris and Peter, which is just yeah. weird. <laughs> yeah, especially when you start to factor in the narrative dynamics, because she seems to have better chemistry with boys who betray her. Yeah. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> Tris is only attracted to bad boys, apparently. Men who actively want to kill her at various stages of her life. Good, Which good, if we good did message. something with, like come to that realization, <laughs> like engage with that at all, that would be one thing. But instead, we're just repeatedly told that she's in love with four. And it's like, is she? Mm-hmm. Is she? Is she? She has more of a sibling chemistry with him, I find. Definitely, like a much older brother. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you really want to hit on this age gap, don't you? <laughs> He's 31 years old. I mean, and he looks it. It's enjoyable to watch the muscles ripple, but this is not a teenage boy. (laughs) 
no, not at all. And you know, I don't begrudge Theo James in the role. I think there are moments when he's really effective, actually, at balancing mm-hmm. the sort of vulnerability and um, threatening nature of four. It's a hard right. role to be able to do both. And there's there's moments where he's good, but it's also like the film doesn't know what to do with the aging up of the characters. Like mm-hmm. they've aged everybody up, but they're yep. just not talking about it. So it's right. like in all of the copy for the film, we're still told that Triss is 17 mm-hmm. and it's like, but no. what if she's not? Actually, <laughs> Yeah. What if the events of this film, what if they've been in Amity for two years at this point mm-hmm. and she's nearly 20 instead? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But we'd need a much more mature, character and it's just not written that way right it's still Mm -hmm. written less certainly less so than the book but we are still ultimately reliant on a kind of teenage impulsivity for any of the narrative to function yeah and it kind of works for me when tris has to go through the various simulations to open up the box like in her scenes where she has to rescue her mother and she's desperate to be reunited with her I mean, some of the best special effects in the film, it's actually the thing I remember the most about this movie is the house flying up into the sky and buildings shattering in sort of Matrix wannabe style. I think all that kind of stuff is good, but Triss's desire to save her parents feels very teenagery to me. Mm -hmm. But then when you have to believe that she's actively plotting a rebellion, you know, an insurgency, it becomes a little harder to believe. Whereas I think Four and his reactions to his two parents and kind of being caught in the middle of all of their BS. Oh, that's uh, very 30s. <laughs> it's very, yeah, like divorced parents at Christmas or Thanksgiving, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, mom wants me to come for one day, but that's the day that dad wanted to do the present opening. <laughs> dad wants us for Boxing Day and mom wants to overthrow society. Which one <laughs> are we going to go with this year? Oh, boy. Yeah, I think Naomi Watts also gets more to do in the third one. But again, absolutely thankless. When she turned up, I just thought, wow, okay, this movie did great. Whoever is the casting agent on this film, A plus you get a raise. Script wise, thanks for casting a bunch of really talented people and just not really knowing what to do with them. Or, as we talked about in the book, you're really just setting up placeholders so that you can pay them off in the third one. Like, I firmly believe, okay, well, let's cast Octavia Spencer now so that we've got her on a retainer, Mm. we'll lock her into a contract, and then we'll give her more to do in the third one. But guess what? That's not super exciting for an audience. No, and again, this film, much like the book, just feels like I'm putting in time before I get to the stuff that actually interests me. And I don't know. I don't know why audiences are expected to sit through this over and over (laughs) again. Like, I get it. I get the monetary reasons for locking an author into a trilogy contract. I get all of that. Mm -hmm. And also, I think the thing we learned from all of this is that it's it's not a very compelling way to tell stories. Like, there's a reason why all these trilogies dropped off at a certain point. Yeah, it's hard to avoid feeling as though we're being strung along. But I Mm -hmm. will say, I actually find the mystery of the box and Janine's desire to open it. If we hadn't just read the book, if we were going into this cold and this was just the second film for us, I do think that that would have been interesting enough to warrant having this second film. And then you dangle the tease and say, come back for the third one, because then you'll actually get to see it paid off. Like, 
I don't remember being dissatisfied with this so much as thinking, okay, now I'm intrigued because this really could open things up. Mm. Also, I will say financially, it definitely made sense for them because this movie cost $110 million to make, which was very common at the time, and it grossed $297 worldwide. Yeah. Why did Allegiant underperform comparatively? What was... It came after the fact of both The Hunger Games and Harry Potter, and people Mm. just said, oh, and also Twilight, and people just said, no, we're absolutely, like, that's when we started to feel strung out, and Allegiant missed the boat, so. The cover for Allegiant is also really, really bad. I don't know if you've looked at it recently. Ah, yeah, do we want to talk about her hair? (laughs) I just think it's a very bold choice because I'm always fascinated when characters in books or TV or film cut their hair. I think I've talked about this before, but to me, it's very, it's a very clear visual symbol that they're undergoing some kind of change, Mm -hmm. right? They want to transform and it's something that we have control over ourselves. And I think it makes sense here, but also I, I don't think it serves any function because here we just do it. Yeah. So in the book, the haircut is really built up to, and it's, Triss can't, she can't braid her own hair because her shoulder is injured. And Mm -hmm. so she can't get her hair out of her eyes by herself. She needs help to do it. And she's not, she's not willing to put herself in that vulnerable position. And having her hair braided reminds her too much of her mother. There's like all this psychological stuff. And so she hacks it off, but she like, she hacks it off at the chin. Like she does it herself with a knife, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Somehow in the film, (laughs) she gives herself a pixie cut. Which is yeah. quite impressive. I mean, if nothing else, she could consider giving up being a revolutionary and instead being a hairdresser. Because to give yourself a pixie cut with that level of symmetry is quite impressive. <laughs> it is absolutely flawless. Like, there, <laughs> there is no suspension of disbelief where it's even, let me tidy up the back for you. This is immaculate. She did it with an electric razor, despite the fact that we're given no indication that such a thing exists in this world. I will say it made me wonder about the shooting order between The Fault in Our Stars and Divergent 1 and 2, because Mm. I know Divergent and Fault in Our Stars came out the same year. That doesn't always mean that when the shooting has happened, right? And Mm -mm. it's the exact same haircut as The Fault in Our Stars. Oh, yeah. Okay. Interesting, interesting. Yeah. Um, okay, I'm bored of talking about this because yep. I feel like we have exhausted everything that this combo yep. has to offer. So let's do some YA bingo. Okay. Bingo! Not a good bingo. All right. All right, Here's what mine. do you got? You ready? Mm-hmm. I'm going to make an argument for a road trip because all they ever do is walk between factions. <laughs> and it's a big city, although you would never know it in the book. No, you would absolutely never know it in the book. Obviously, we have a chosen one. Mm-hmm. Strong chosen one. I'm going to give CGI. I'm going to give some CGI props because I think the simulations are very well done. Yeah, I mean, it's very CGI-y, but I don't mind it. Like, I kind of appreciate it. It makes sense in the world of a simulation, right? Like, yeah. it should feel just a little bit uncanny and a little bit fake. And I think it really works. Mm-hmm. I'm going to give some CGI, like, thumbs down. Anytime they're flying over the city. Like a bird's eye view of the yes. city. Particularly at the end as everybody's sort of walking towards the open gate and you just go, oh, wow, that is not yeah. a city that is just computer generated. Yeah. And it's also like nine people have been cut and pasted. <laughs> Oh my gosh, I don't even think they were moving in the film. It was hilarious. 
I'm going to mention ableism again because the very premise of Dauntless is ableist and we actually get some engagement with that in this volume Mm. when Triss is sort of horrified at the idea that the Dauntless elders just when they become physically infirm off themselves. I thought that was interesting. Well, it's fascinating to me that she's never wondered before, right? Like, I thought that was a really interesting (laughs) scene. Like, why are there tons of old people in abnegation and no old people here? Interesting. Hmm. Um, I'm going to do Aged Up for sure. Mm -hmm. 31 years old. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, how old? How old? He's 31. And Naomi wants us in her 40s. I mean, it's just great. Uh, oh, obviously dead bodies and lots of them, but I'm thinking mm-hmm. particularly of the way Will's dead body and her parents' dead bodies sort of hang over her and reoccur yes. in all of the simulations. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where I'm at. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah, I don't really have much more to add apart from the inclusion flip of casting Octavia Spencer because oh, Joanna yeah. is very clearly coded as a blonde white woman in the book. That's right. And then, of course, stunt nice. casting for all of these talented actors with nada to do. <laughs> it's such a waste, hey? And I guess, is that really, maybe that's the line between stunt casting and just casting is when you put a big name in and you give them nothing to do uh yeah i mean that's not a bad way to approach it in terms of our context not in a film's context or a tv show please don't do this please (laughs) please don't assume that we want to see a very talented person not get to do anything because that's not exciting for audiences when we say stunt casting we're not happy about it yeah exactly yeah (laughs) so that comes close but sadly does not give us a line oh man insurgent you're a disappointment across the board (laughs) in just so many ways yes (laughs) Uh, okay okay. well there we go we are two-thirds done this franchise brenna (laughs) well if you want to write to us and tell us that it's obviously chicago and insurgent is good actually you can find us on the twitters at hkhs pod or on the hashtag hkhs pod um if you want to send us something longer hkhs pod at gmail.com is the place to go joe where do they find you i can be reached at b still my remote and that's the letter b And I'm at Brenna C. Gray, and that's Gray with an A. And one reason you might want to be emailing us is because um, we've got Band Book Club coming up with our Mm -hmm. first installment, and that is The Catcher and the Rye. Joe and I are, well, I'm revisiting it. Joe's visiting it for the first time, and I think Mm -hmm. it's going to be an interesting conversation. Absolutely. Yeah, you got two days if you're listening to this on Drop Day. Woohoo. And um, what's our next full-length text, Joe? All right, so after Catcher in the Rye, we're going to go to get an abortion, Brenna. We're going to be talking about (laughs) Unpregnant, which is a 2019 book by Jenny Hendricks and Ted Kaplan, as well as the 2020 film of the same name by Rachel Lee Goldenberg. My gosh, don't soften that blow at all, Joe. Yeah. Apparently it's a comedy? I don't know. It's one I've meant to read for a while, and so I'm excited to check it out. So yeah, that's where we're headed. So make sure you get your thoughts in ASAP if you're doing book club with us. And otherwise, go and pick up Unpregnant, and we'll talk about that soon. Indeed. So until next time, I will see you on the page. And I will see you on the screen.
know as well as I do that there was this period of time yes. where every, especially science fiction or fantasy series, YA author, especially any YA trilogy, especially any YA series, it always had to come in threes. And finally, Janet Trier, British actress, as the mysterious woman from the outside who only gets a moment, but she will be more important in Allegiant. Janet McTeer. Damn it. <laughs>